everyone. Good afternoon. As Lisa said, uh, I'm the vice chair of our NACD Northern California chapter. I thought I'd start off by uh, setting the stage, give you a little background on how this program came about, introduce the speakers, let them introduce themselves, talk about what they're doing uh, for a few minutes, and then tee us off with a couple of questions and then open it up for discussion. Uh, the best programs are the one where you all provide your feedback, your experiences, what's working, what's not working, and just make it fluid and conversational. So with that, I'll kick us off here. Uh, so as Lisa said, I serve on the Board of Ecology, but I also serve on uh, three other boards. Um, two, are two are public, two are private. Every one of them are in different stages of ESG development. Um, some are more sophisticated than others. Some are more challenged by where to begin. Some already have a, sustain a sustainability report, for instance, and we're well down the path. So I know all of us are in some various stage of this, and this, it's becoming more and more of a familiar term. A lot's happened in the last, what, 10 months, 12 months, in addition to COVID. But with regards specifically to ESG with mandates that have come out, and we know that in Q1 of 2021, we're going to see our first set of guidelines that are going to come out by the World Economic Forum and the Big Four. So that's, that's on the horizon for us. Uh, I, I'm leading the initiative for one of my boards. I'm very active with another one in ESG strategy. And uh, with the one that I was leading the initiative with initially, I reached out to a friend of mine. Some of you might know her name's Jan Babiak. She serves on Walgreens Boot Barn and she also serves on BMO out of uh, Canada. And I asked her for some advice because she, when she was in her big four accounting background, she actually established the sustainability division for uh, in her professional world before she became a professional board director. And she is the one who suggested I talk to Sarah Teslick. And wow, what an experience it was to talk to Sarah. Uh, so I reached out to Sarah and uh, we had a, what an hour long phone call, Sarah. And I, <laughs> she was quick to offer insights about um, the board that was in question that I was calling about. Uh, she had me feverishly taking notes. She had me speechless at various points in the conversation. And she was well informed, much more informed than I was about the, the company and how we were viewed from a public perspective, from director bios to what the website looks like, to what our proxy um, filings said, to what uh, press releases were talking about, and instantly provided ways that we could, we could better ourselves in key areas. And then from there, Sarah suggested, she said, hey, in addition to talking to somebody like me, you should really talk to a law firm that represents activists and a law firm that represents corporations fighting against activists. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, by the way, talk to my friend Lori Keith over at Parnassus, which is a large, a large ESG fund. Talk to her and get from the investor perspective what they look at when they're investing in companies um, with regard to ESG. So with that, I'd like to introduce Sarah Teslick. Um, Sarah is a partner and leading governance and investor relations expert. Derek Zaba, a partner and co-chair of shareholder activism practice at Sidley Austin. And Lori Keith is the director of research and a portfolio manager for Parnassus Midcap Funds. And I'm going to pass it over to Sarah to speak a little bit more about herself and give us some more background. Can I start about myself and just talk about ESG? I'm a woman without a past. Will that work? 
Um, um, thank you, everyone. Um, it's a, obviously a very uh, impressive group to be a part of, so thank you for that. Thank you, Krista. Uh, it's a challenge with a group like this to think about things worth saying that can be said in six minutes that um, you haven't already heard before. So let me start with a slightly different direction. I promise this is about ESG, even though it doesn't sound like it. Um, the most interesting fact that I've read in the last few weeks was one that probably a number of you have seen that in the first half of 2020, 20% of all trades in North American markets were made by individual investors, 20% of all trades. That's the highest number it's been in a very, very long time. Well, that sounds like an interesting fact. What's even more interesting is if you look at what companies those individuals are buying, they are not buying what you would think, which is consumer facing companies, you know, restaurants that they've gone out to eat at or whatever. They are buying companies with stories. And I don't mean fairy tales, but companies where you could say over the dinner table, this is how they make money. This is why it will make sense over 20 years. This is the edge they have that other people don't have. That shouldn't be surprising. We're all human beings first. But if you look at the data, it becomes very clear that that's what individuals are buying. Now, what's interesting is the average investor on, let's say, Robinhood's platform is a 31-year-old male. What do you think the average analyst is? Roughly a 31-year-old male. We know that stories drive them. Most companies give them data dumps. Um, the average investor deck is one that you could probably shuffle the pages amongst and no one would even know that they were out of order. Um, let's look at then the other parts of the market that are changing as rapidly as the individual investors. Uh, as I think all of you know, last year was the first time that index funds exceeded uh, actively managed funds in size for, for mutual funds, first time ever. Um, not only that, funds like Lori's, so longer term focused ESG screened funds, still care about making money, um, are growing faster than traditional asset managers, which have lost 1.3 trillion in the last decade. Um, and then an often overlooked part of the market, as well as individuals being overlooked, uh, are family offices, duration capital, people who have too much money today, but they want to pass it down in a couple generations. Uh, they've grown tenfold in 10 years and threefold in only two years. So if you ask yourself, what do all those fastest growing parts of the market have in common? They all need different information than most companies provide in, through their standard IR efforts, and most of them need what I call a story. Again, not a fairy story, but what, how you could explain how the company makes money, what the drivers are that would make me believe that they will be around for a period of time. Interestingly, companies aren't in general great at telling stories in my personal opinion. I sometimes, if I'm in a hurry, will go to Wikipedia rather than a company's website to get a one paragraph overview of what the company does. Um, I often struggle to find something that I could explain to my children about this is how the way they make money is something their peers cannot also replicate. Um, the sorts of things that you would want to know if you were um, thinking about putting money in. What does this have to do with ESG? ESG is all about stories. Uh, basically, in some ways, you should lose the terms environmental, social, and governance. Say the, these are the factors that are all about what are your long-term drivers? What are your durable drivers? What are your distinguishing, differentiating drivers? Um, how do you get information that's different from how other people get information? How can you pivot faster than other people can pivot? How can you make money in a way that's going to be sustainable in light of all of the policy risks that we are facing? That's actually what ESG is. I think when we use the term ESG, we assume we're thinking about 
policy issues. Um, and yes, there are people who are interested in ESG solely for policy reasons. And yes, there are people who use companies as platforms to pursue policy goals, whether or not that is harmful or beneficial to the company. But by and large, what's interesting about ESG today is that it is about telling stories to the rapidly growing, the most rapidly growing parts of the market. And there's increasing data showing that many of these ESG factors are not just leading indi indicators, but better leading indicators than a lot of the factors on analyst spreadsheets. Um, again, if half the market's indexed, they don't care about how you're doing next quarter. They care about drivers that raise all boats. And that's one of the reasons that the, my other favorite fact that I will end on to try to set the example of staying within the time frame uh, is that 90% of all institutional investors, 98%, take ESG factors into account when they invest. And that includes traditional asset managers reached by IR departments. Um, many of those are doing so not because they are passionate about the policy issues, even if they do care, it's because they are becoming better indicators in an era where issues like whether you got the best graduates from Caltech are more important than what your bricks and mortar look like. It's a very different market. It takes very different variables and most of those variables are ESG and AI is allowing us to analyze them in a way that we never could before, which means you can collect a lot of variables, each one of which might have just a small impact on performance, but with AI, we can tease out the role of each one. And so they are leading indicators as well as particularly important to a very differently composed market than we had before. There, Krista, within my time limit. I'm impressed, that was right. <laughs> on. Uh, Derek, you're up. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, and, and glad to be speaking with you. I, I have not timed anything I'm going to say, so I'll have to keep an eye on the clock because I don't want to be the one that uh, goes over time. I think you can tell already that this is a much better structured and, and organized interactive conversation than one you may have seen a couple of days ago on national TV. So we, we, hope, to, uh, we hope to do better than that. Um, uh, my name is Derek Saba. I, I, I co-head. Yeah, I hope it's a low, ex, low bar there to beat, so hopefully we can do that. Um, Thank you, everybody, for, for taking the time. I, I co-head the shareholder activism practice at, at Sidley Austin, uh, a, a law firm. Uh, and in the world of ESG, activism can mean a, a, a wide variety of things, right? It can mean uh, supporting AA proposals, uh, sustainability activism, governance activism. Yeah, here in Silicon Valley, it can mean employee activism. Certainly the likes of Google has had uh, a very uh, near and dear experience with employee activism. Where I spend most of my time is really in what I would call uh, economic activism, which is the shareholder activism that Elliott's management, uh, Starboard, Carl Icahn, the likes of, of all those folks play. And even in that world, uh, ESG is a pretty important or a very important piece of the puzzle and it's becoming more important over time. So what you find, and, and I, I have spent time, and maybe I, I represent the activist uh, perspective as well because I was a partner at uh, an activist investment firm before, uh, before uh, joining Sidley. Uh, so I have that perspective as well. But one thing that's true about shareholder activism, one thing why these ESG issues can really make a difference in those types of campaigns is as a shareholder activist, you can't just 
come to a company and try to get shareholders on board and simply bring your, what I would call economic thesis, the thing you really care about if you're Jesse Conan at, at, at Elliott. It's, it's sell the company, um, remove the CEO, cut cost. That's a very difficult case to make if you don't have a second part of that. In part, it's because um, well, there's a default to support directors in the United States, unless there's a reason not to, you see director votes in the 90 plus percent. Uh, but it's also the case that companies have better information. You all as directors, and I knew this when I was on the activist side, you all have non-public information. So it's very difficult to make the case, even though you have better information than I do, I still am smarter, I still have a better idea that you haven't thought of and we should go this direction. You have to couple this with arguments as to why the board might not be acting in the best interest of shareholders. And that may be because you had a poor vote. It may be because you're not engaging with shareholders. It may be because these things that are becoming increasingly more important, especially the sustainability piece of, of, of ESG, you're not adequately focusing on. And so the whole, there's a, every activist that goes to a campaign will package issues in this ESG wrapping paper and deliver them along with the economic thesis. And if you're an activist, and this goes back to I think what Sarah was talking about stories, the best way for an activist to couple these two theses together is to have a very cohesive story tying their economic thesis to the ESG matter. So for instance, um, you know, governance is pretty easy to tie to, you know, a, 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 an economic thesis, but compensation might be a piece of it. So if you can tie an economic thesis relating to a CEO who's done too many acquisitions and you tie it to the incentives in the compensation plan, um, the, uh, or other, you know, other oversight matters, if you can tie those two together, you have a very compelling story as an activist. And one of the things I do want to mention just, just, from my perspective, because it's coming from a very specific lens. One of the things that's confusing about ESG is it's it, it, confusing to me at least is people say ESG and that can mean different things. Sometimes people say ESG, they mean sustainability, they mean NS, so there's a silent G. Sometimes when I see ESG, say ESG, they mean the governance piece. For me, ESG is everything that encompasses really that non-economic part of an activist thesis, which includes most notably a letter that would be missing, which is compensation. So from my perspective, the way I think of it, the whole world of non-economic issues is economic, is um, environmental, social compensation and governance. And the reason that I raise this is because each of those specific letters, as you go from E to S to C to G, becomes much, much easier to tie in an activist campaign. It's very, very easy to tie a governance failure in an activist campaign, you see them all the time. They've always been there. Compensation, we see that very regularly these days. The S and the E are much more difficult. We haven't seen those in past, but I would expect them to be increasingly a part of an activist thesis. You can definitely see on the S, the human capital piece, the culture, the way people have responded in COVID, what they've done with respect to return of capital to shareholders, vis-a-vis -vis layoffs. You can see a lot of theses that are coming out of COVID within the S world, that'll start to gain traction. The E has become, is, is, is going to be very difficult um, and it will continue to be difficult because most E issues like climate change are more systemic issues. It's tough to, to figure somebody that on a specific company is going to vote on a director who's trying to decide, you know, which director should we put in place in order to decide to split up the company or change the CEO on a climate change issue. You could see it in certain industries, but I think that's that's a much a, a much tougher angle for an activist an activist to play. 
So, and, and then you can, I, I think I'm hitting, hitting my six minutes. So why don't I pause there and, and we can circle back to that um, when the next, uh, the, the Q&A session comes around. So why don't I pass it to, to Lori? Thanks, Derek. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all uh, for joining today. So just uh, to put into context a little bit more about my background, I've uh, been with Parnassus Investments and Parnassus has actually been focused on ESG investing since 1984. So it's, uh, it's certainly uh, ESG as has been highlighted. It means um, many different things to many different people. There's a lot of acronyms out there. And when I actually first started working in the industry, it was for, referred to as SRI, socially responsible investing, which really was a focus more on exclusionary screens. So filtering out companies that have uh, some specific uh, exposure to an area such as alcohol or tobacco. Uh, as a firm, we actually do still have uh, exclusionary uh, screens in place, but I would say where the industry has really shifted uh, from the asset management side is really focused on positive factors and focusing on those companies that have best-in-class practices. So when we talk about ESG, what we're really focused on is this term ESG integration. You'll hear that a, a lot because that's really the most commonly used approach in the asset manager management industry today. And it's really what that means is you're incorporating environmental social governance screens into your investment process and ultimately your portfolio construction. So uh, the reason that we've been focused around ESG investing and we look at that in context with our fundamental approach was, which is really looking for high quality businesses. Companies that have strong ESG practices are indicative of high quality businesses. And, and so for us, uh, we spend a lot of time digging up front uh, before we get involved with companies to make sure that their practices around these ES and G factors uh, do represent uh, a company that's uh, really doing uh, best in class or high quality. Now, certainly across industries, uh, you know, I often get asked, well, which factors do you look at? It does vary by industry, which are the most material factors for those industries. Uh, so I think that's important to consider as well. And, and certainly there are frameworks out there such as SASB, uh, which will provide, uh, you know, some materiality framework around the key factors that investors have identified, of course, as a board and the companies they need to evaluate and incorporate what they believe are truly the material core factors to consider uh, over the long term. As part of our process, we also spend a lot of time focused on engagement. And again, that's another term that I think is, is becoming increasingly used in the industry because investors are now, uh, while we're not activists, uh, we don't, you know, we don't uh, take any sort of public role. We have a lot of dialogue with our companies and it's really important for us uh, to have that dialogue to help companies not only to recognize the things that they're doing well, but also to identify things that could be improved over time. And so one of the things that's really changed in this industry since I've been working in it for many years is that there's a whole third party research uh, provider um, industry out there, including companies like Sustainalytics or MSCI. And what they're doing are providing formal ratings uh, for companies, for every publicly traded company. And so us as an active investor, uh, we don't rely on those ratings. Um, and it's, it's simply a source of input for how we look at each company holistically. But frankly, it is a good source of input because you know there's a whole asset management uh, industry that's being constructed, almost product 
productizing uh, ESG now, and that's manifesting into things like EDF, ETFs, and even BlackRock has uh, projected they're going to have a trillion dollars in their sustainability uh, products uh, within 10 years. So a lot of these products do rely on those ratings, and those ratings are very important, uh, not only uh, for getting your your company into those funds, but also even as uh, active managers like myself, as we're looking for these high quality companies and a company that has poor ratings uh, could be indicative uh, of either uh, something more systemic or uh, an issue. But in many cases, what we see, it's often a reflection of what they're disclosing. And back what Sarah was saying earlier about really providing stories, I think one of the most important thing uh, boards and management teams to think about is controlling their own narratives because disclosure has a lot of uh, impact in terms of how these ratings are going to reflect on those companies. Often it's, it's, it's a reflection of that information that you're giving. And so I think it's really important to be able to control that narrative over time uh, so that you are not only in the best light with your shareholders, which by the way, also affects your cost of capital and ability to attract uh, and retain talent. And, and also even your customers are looking at this type of information. I think it's also uh, important that you know companies really think about you know strategically how they're going to evolve. It's a journey over time. It's not a static point in time. And so thinking about where are you today, how are you being viewed externally, and and what are your objectives, what are the goals longer term to improve that over time is is a key factor. That is a great way to kick this off. Thank you. And I already see the uh, chat there blowing up with questions. That's that's fabulous. Um, as we think about this conversation today, the, the, what we want to be able to take away is to be able to create a dialogue at the board level and with management um, on how to protect the yes vote, but also how to attract and retain investors, how to attract and retain clients, and that overall new group of, uh, of stakeholders that we haven't given a lot of attention to in the past. So, or maybe we have, maybe we haven't, but an enhanced focus on employees, for instance, et cetera. Um, Derek, you touched on some things that um, drew me back to when I talked to your partner, Kai Lykafit. Yeah. By the way, Kai is speaking at National um, on ESG and shareholder activism, uh, the virtual summit. Um, you, we've, you talked that you touched upon stay on pay and Sarah and I touched on stay on pay too. Um, some of the things that I wrote down that were takeaways for me on stay on pay is number one, you guys provided me with a report on my own company showing me statistics on uh, voting records. You also said that I should be paying attention to change in voting patterns with our top 10 shareholders um, to see if there's a shift in movement. You also uh, suggested that we take a look at director tenure, that we looked at um, changing committees if, if directors had served as chair of committees for a long period of time. Um, there, there's a lot of things that I took away from that. Could you elaborate a little bit on um, how we should monitor uh, for activism and changing dynamics to that shareholder base that would be good for us to pay attention to in light of where all of this is going? Uh, yeah, sure. Happy, happy to do that. Um, I, I, I hadn't realized that you had a deep conversation with, with Kai. He's, he's quite the character, so I'm sure people should tune in on national and, 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 uh, and hear him speak. Uh, yeah, in terms of monitoring, monitoring the shareholder base, there's a couple of things that, that you can do, and this is really more from a kind of purely activism perspective, most because most, that's what people are, more, frankly, most, most acutely worried about. Obviously, for, for ESG, I think it's a, a slower-moving transition, so you typically, the 13F quarterly filing 
things are, are good enough to get a sense of where your shareholder base is moving. Uh, but activists move, move much, much more quickly than that. So there are uh, a couple of things you can do. Um, you can use uh, surveillance firms. So there are firms that will dig through your custodial reports and give you a better sense of how things are changing. They have a good sense for a lot of activists of where they hold their shares and which custodian. Um, and if folks want to, you know, want to, there are, um, want to, want to, I'm happy to provide recommendations because not, not all firms that do this are, are created equally, at least in looking for an activist. But the couple of things that I, I would recommend that I think are a little bit um, less known, the, the most effective way in this day and age that, that I have found to identify if there's an activist that's showing up is to um, assess, understand, and analyze who is clicking on your website, on your IR website. So there's a couple of things. First off, if you're getting IP addresses from, there's only a couple of law firms that represent activists. And if you're getting IP addresses from those law firms that are pinging your website, that probably means you have an activist problem. If you, they are anonymized, but there's a lot in New York City, that probably means that somebody who lives, who is in New York City, who does not want you to know that they're pinging your website uh, is doing so. Some companies um, have those capabilities, especially larger companies, some don't. But even if you don't have those capabilities, if you find uh, a, a number of pings that uh, people pulling down your bylaws and your corporate governance guidelines, it's probably not just for full reading. There's probably some reason why they're doing it that's, uh, uh, that is, is uh, a little bit less, uh, less innocent. Uh, and then the other thing that I would recommend, which um, more activists are doing, Starboard specifically, but I've seen other ones, is they'll move shares very early these days into record name, 100, 500, 1,000 shares. That used to be something that activists did right before the nomination deadline. But we've seen institutions move shares into record name very early. So if you do, you should get an alert or at least monitor from time to time. Make sure the general counsel or IR is aware of that. And if you see somebody moving into 100, 500, 1,000 shares, the only reason to do it in that quantity is really because you want to affect corporate action. So that's, that's something should be absolutely beyond the, the checklist of items to, to maintain uh, a sense of where your shareholder base is going. All right, thank you. I want to um, move over to Amanda North. Her question is, where does ESG sit on boards? A lot of us are struggling. Should it be in governance? Should it be an audit? Should it be, should it be a full board thing? Should it be an ESG committee? Who wants to tackle that question? I'll punt to Sarah. Um, it can be it can be anywhere, um, and of course it varies by company and sector and and how you're structured and to what extent you have a committee system where much of the heavy lifting is done at the committee level versus companies where much of the heavy lifting is done at the board level. What is pretty clear is that increasingly companies are um, adding explicit names to committees for the various subjects that shareholders expect to see overseen because the clearest way you can show that you have board oversight of things like ESG is to have a, na a committee name reflected. That sounds very uh, superficial and it is, but the scorecards grade you heavily. Uh, the ones that Laurie mentioned, MSCI and Sustainalytics for ES, ISS for G, grade you very heavily on whether there's board oversight of various functions. For most boards, that oversight is so obvious that they don't bother to say it. And so they get bad scores because they haven't explicitly said something like our board oversees risk. Um, so there's a comical side to this. There are companies that are making their committee names 
really, really long to make sure that whatever the policy issue is, they've got it covered at the board side. And we've done bingo games where we say we are the corporate governance, sustainability, human capital, you know, thought whatever committee of the board. Um, I know that sounds silly, but it does in fact almost automatically give you uh, score points with some of the ENS scorecards. Uh, you can kind of do a similar thing if you have various ES factors in your annual calendar so that companies that don't have the words in their committees, if they're asked, well, you know, what, what evidence do you have that this is a matter for board oversight? You can say this is a factor that is on our annual board calendar. A lot of companies don't say that, but it's a way you can cover more issues than you might cover by your committee names is to mention that things are on, on the calendar. Um, you know, there isn't a lot of differentiating from shareholders' um, uh, voting purposes for whether uh, governance is taken up at the board level or the committee level. You know, the most common, of course, is committee level. But you have a lot. We have a lot of latitude on that. And Julie uh, from Recology uh, has a question. Julie, I'll let you let you ask your question. Yes, my question is, how do you really tie ESG to profitability? Because that's why businesses are in business. So it, I, I see somebody said there's some research out there, but any quick comments from the speakers on that one? I can do that, but also Laurie should, because I will give her a plug. Her Their socially focused fund is the highest performing fund of any in the country every single year. So if you need proof, you do what Lori does. Um, so there is, it, you have to remember, it's very early days for focusing on ESG issues as other than policy issues. It's only been in the last few years that some of the big money managers have installed you know, huge AI departments looking at, you know, tracking 2,000 variables to figure out which ones are good leading indicators. So the, the information is only beginning to come out. There is good information on the FCLT Global website. That is the focusing capital for the long-term global. It's the organization of the largest mutual funds and they exist essentially to research which ESG variables are performance indicators and which are not. Uh, Bank of America puts out a report every year that almost all of us follow that track the 10 ESG factors for which there is the most evidence of a correlation to forward-looking performance. When I, the 20 years I ran the Council of Institutional Investors, so this is back when Lori was doing this and she and I were the only two doing it, so ESG was not cool. We used to track unofficially a lot of variables that I don't think any money manager would, would admit that they track, but it included things like the number of gold doodads that a CEO wore. Turns out that actually does correlate to performance. Um, there, so there, there are a lot of very private ones that, that are being test marketed right, right, right now, including by traditional asset managers. But there is data. There are a number of sources for it. Um, it is a rapidly growing area. Baliasny, for example, the Chicago-based money manager, has an algorithm that they'll allow anyone to submit their theory, an ESG theory, and they will run it through their algorithm to figure out whether or not it's a performance indicator. It's a very new space. It's a very exciting space. Um, and and some of the most interesting conversations I've had in the last year with people discovering certain variables that correlate. That, that arms race is going on internally as well as companies are using AI to figure out particularly which social variables protect 
uh, predict performance, predict who will leave, predict morale. Um, Amazon, as you know, does this every day for every one of its almost million employees. They all have to answer an HR question every day. And so they discover lots of juicy little facts. My favorite being that the length of an employee's commute is the single best predictor of morale which you couldn't have known if you didn't have very good systems that track things. If you think about that, you can see a number of reasons why that would work. But again, it, it's early days and there's a lot of good work being done. And I should stop because Lori's the one who actually does this and beats everybody else at it. Based upon that though, I assume teleworking has improved morale. <laughs> well, it's been an extreme positive, clearly. <laughs> Lori, I I'll just add a few comments. I think it was well said by Sarah. I think a few items that I would say is, you know, this focus on materiality is really important because when you open up a sustainability report by many companies, you know, this, this topic of greenwashing is still very prevalent out there today as companies are putting out, you know, some glossy slides uh, with very little substance in that information uh, that really ties to the strategy and the core materiality of the factors that are really going to drive uh, performance over the long run. Uh, but those companies that are, I mean, I'll give you an example, semiconductor, that's an area of uh, sector that I've been heavily involved in uh, across my fund. It was a diversified fund, but we've done a lot of investments in that space. And so, uh, you know, companies that I've invested in that have taken a very focused approach around, for instance, uh, reducing their water use. That's a very high, um, there's a, a very significant amount of water used with producing semiconductor chips. And those companies, uh, this company that's been able to reduce that substantially has actually been able to improve their profitability substantially over time. Another one of my companies in the software space uh, was able to increase their uh, employee retention uh, significantly uh, over the last five years. And that is very much a material cost associated with going out and hiring and attracting very, very uh, top talent to drive innovation in this industry. Uh, so if you're focused on materiality and identifying that and linking that to your strategy, uh, there's a very high correlation to profitability. And uh, back to sustainability reporting, I think it's really important that companies not only just uh, put out what they're doing today, but over time, those goals that you're setting for, that's really what's going to drive value. Because as you're making those improvements, uh, that should correlate to improve profitability. Yeah, you know, and... When you spoke, you said focus on materiality, and that's such a big statement and so hard to come up with what that hit list should look like. And, and to, to add on to Julie's question, you know, if you could, if you could share, so Julie's with Recology, Recology is private, but we compete in a public space. Um, we have public contracts. So we, we act and we behave. We try to present ourselves in the best light. We have a sustainability report, but we're, we're trying, we're struggling with, well, what should we, what's material? What should we be disclosing? Can you talk about why it's important for private companies to have an ESG strategy, just like public companies, and then maybe dig a little more into materiality and maybe give us three or four different bullet points that each one of us should be taking back uh, to the boardroom to ask about for ESG? I can start. I mean, presumably as a private company, you still care about attracting capital. Um, and if you think about ESG again, not as policy, but how do your core products and services make you money in a way that's likely to be sustainable despite all of the different external pressures on you? 
Um, that's how you can narrow your story to what is material. And that's actually how you can narrow your story. So you're actually telling a story and not just doing a data dump. So start with your core products and services. Um, ask how you make money that you think you can do better than your peers and then ask how durable that is. I mean, you'll be answering most of the ESG questions you need to answer if you start with that focus because then it is like Lori said so did you get the right people are you keeping the right people or did you train them and send them to somebody else you know how many lawsuits do you have compared to what you used to um, you know how many regulatory setbacks you have I mean these are they're they're ESG but start with the core products and services and I would say the corollary to that which I think most companies miss and, and Lori kind of highlighted it referencing the sustainability reports is ESG communication right now tends to be on refuting the negatives. We don't have too many emissions. We haven't had this mistake. We haven't had any harassment. Um, a, proper, a proper ESG story, a proper materiality assessment is a positive one. It's again, how do my, I mean, it's, it's what Derek was saying that the story that you have in activism, essentially, how can I make money in a durable way, uh, which is how can I make money in an ESG responsible way that helps you narrow the focus. So you're not the United Nations. Uh, I like the example that Coca-Cola has uh, created where of course every um, special interest in the world wants Coca-Cola to pursue their goals as a company. And so Coca-Cola finally say, you know, you know what, we can't pursue a thousand goals and be effective, a thousand ESG goals. We're going to pick three that are material to our business and that's water, sugar, and plastics. And we will focus on those. We're not saying others aren't important, but we can't drive the debate on the others. And no one has complained about that. So you can focus even as a private company. Yeah, and let me just add why you should focus. So it, it, certainly in the public sphere, if you're a public company, it's very, very clear that your shareholders care about these, these issues. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, all of the institutional managers care to, to varying degrees. Um, a big reason why they care is because when they are pitching for capital for their funds, they need to go to the pension funds and demonstrate that they care about these issues. Now, that is the same thing that will occur hasn't occurred as much in the private sphere, but if you look at the private equity funds and the venture capital funds, they are going to many of these same capital sources. And I don't think they have faced yet the pressure to do the same thing the public managers have, do, but that have done, but that, that's coming. It's just a matter of time. So I think if you're a private company focusing on these issues, a public company focusing on these issues, you're kind of have to do that to keep up. A private company focusing on the issues, I think you're a little bit ahead of the curve here in terms of being attractive from a VC and private equity standpoint, the way the world looks two, three, five years down the line, it's a very smart move to start integrating these things. And I think because it's not as evolved at the private company level, the things that you need to do in order to stand out from the crowd are probably much, much easier than what, your, what the public company uh, comparators have to do. And just adding to that, I mentioned duration capital in the family offices earlier. You know, there's a lot of family office investment in private companies, and they're looking for duration. So if you have a duration story going to the family offices, those are loyal, sophisticated shareholders. And there are now, you know, there are now lots of, I and mean, we maintain active current lists of family offices that you can reach out to that happen to invest in companies in your sector of your size. Um, why wouldn't you reach out to investors like that. First, I just want one follow-up. Uh, 
you know, SASB that I mentioned earlier, they provide detailed materiality framework by industry segment. So, you know, that's a good starting point for a company that's starting their journey in terms of identifying what are the most material factors for that respective industry. And of course, I think with any company, it's important to have their own internal group, whether it be a cross-functional team that's as, you know, has the sponsorship by the board and the executive team to really push forward the sustainability initiatives. But I think that's uh, a good starting point for a company that's trying to think about what do what is the uh, what is the asset management industry uh, has identified uh, in terms of core materiality, and that's a good input to start uh, the whole process of putting out that first sustainability report and then iterating that over time. Mm -hmm. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Let's move to Jack and then Carla, because both of them have SEC-related questions. Jack? Yeah, hi. Um, uh, obviously, I represent Calsters, an institutional investor. And um, I, I saw two parts. One, are we doing ourselves a disservice how we describe these ESG indicators? I mean, the reason an investor like us cares about this is that we believe it brings financial value to our portfolio or else we wouldn't spend time on this. That's pretty clear. Yet the business of this has, has adopted this language that it's non-financial reporting. Um, the European Commission is, has a non-financial reporting directive. They actually have labeled their entire mandatory scheme of reporting as non-financial reporting. And we continue to use that language in the United States as well. And it seems like we're lessening the importance of this to business discussions by creating that language around it. So that's one point. The second point around disclosure, the, the, the Europeans have introduced this concept now of dual materiality, which is, um, uh, Lord, your point, uh, the, the SASB uh, material aspects to an investor and then the material aspects to a company's impact on the climate, the world, society. So. You know, one set of materiality factors speaking to SASB, one set of material factors kind of speaking to a GRI, traditional reporting structure. Yet, yet here in the U.S., we do have the SEC under Mary Shapiro. They did issue guidance that companies report these material risks. But when we look at the SEC filings, most of them just contain bland, bland pronouncements by the general counsel that have been drafted to protect the uh, company's position. So how do we get good information and, and a common agreement around these schemes and, and call it the right stuff, I guess. So there's a lot in there. So, so I, I, I appreciate your reactions to those pieces of it. I'm assuming Derek wants to be all over the human capital action at the SEC because I think it's massively underappreciated. It should address a number of your concerns. So I'll just say something at the beginning. Of course, you shouldn't say non-financial. That is lunatic. He, she who controls the vocabulary controls all. So stop it. Um, I mean, in some ways, um, leading indicators are non-financial, but they're really pre-financial. Um, you know, there are things that tell you what the finances are going to look like further on. So yes, control your own vocab. We don't say non-financial around here. Um, and I'd love to talk about the SEC one, but I think, I think Derek, you probably should. I think it's massively underappreciated in its effect, its potential. Uh, yeah, and, and feel free to expand about it. I, I would just comment on the SEC piece of this. I mean, when you're, when you're advising a company on, um, you know, SEC disclosure issues, you're, you're generally thinking about, you know, 10 years ago, it was all a matter of 
uh, litigation protection and compliance. And so risk factors are designed to minimize legal liability. And if you're not worried about a lawsuit in a specific area, generally speaking, there's too many risk factors already. I mean, these documents are already kind of overloaded with risk factors. So if you're not worried about legal liability, that's an easy one that you're that you're not going to include. The other place where you know, at least these things are evolving, certainly proxy statements are evolving to be more communication documents about, about um, things you're trying to communicate. But even then, you're communicating these things from a marketing perspective with respect to uh, a specific vote or a specific um, a, a objective you're trying to achieve in, in, in the proxy statement. So many of the, the broader um, you know, disclosure uh, obligations or desires that you're talking about just don't really enter the conversation, or at least haven't in the U.S. in a way that you've seen in, 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 in Europe. But they may soon. Um, uh, you probably saw the SEC just... Um, came out with some amendments um, to Reg SK, including some regarding human capital. And what caught my attention, but Derek, tell me if I'm a lunatic. No, don't tell me, say it. <laughs> um, if you actually read the words the SEC release, they say effectively to companies that if there are human factors you actually take into account when running the business, you should disclose them. Now, to me, that is way below the materiality standard because companies can take a lot of things into account about human capital that I don't think any of us trained as lawyers would have thought of as material. But, you know, if, if, if you know, I think that's very relevant to your question that uh, this is a, a Trump administration and this SEC said that human capital things that you actually take into account, you should disclose. But Derek, again, your space more than mine. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it's a matter of, of if you to, in order to see more disclosure there, there's either got to be SEC enforcement action threat or legal threat, because those are the things that are going to drive drive disclosure. And and they're you know depending on where the winds blow, there there very very well may be um, a push in one of those two directions. But that's that's really what's going to drive a lot of change. My word. If I could follow up, Lori, are you comfortable making investment decisions? based on information that companies voluntarily produce without any assurance, without any regulatory structure to it. I mean, a GRI and a SASB report are, some, are simply information that the executives of a company said, yeah, this is what we've got here. But there's rarely any auditor assurance to that information and certainly not regulatory guidance. But are you, how do you feel about that as an investor? I mean, it's a great question. I think for us, I mean, obviously we're, we're tracking how companies are performing relative to the information that they're putting out and the, the goals that they put out. And to your point, I mean, um, you know, we have seen some companies move such as a Clorox that's integrated their ESG reporting directly into their financial reporting. We think that's a great practice. Um, you know, there's not many companies that move that direction at this point, but um, we do look for a third-party audit, audit and verification on a lot of the data points that are being included in the reports. Uh, so that's important um, to have, obviously, anything that you're disclosing in those reports, uh, you know, ideally has that third-party verification uh, and auditing trail. I think, you know, once you disclose something as a publicly traded company, you're going to be expected, uh, you know, that, that data is out there. And so you're going to have to continue to update that and, and you'll be held accountable for that data that's put out there. I want to, I want to move over to Carla, that you had a comment. And then from there, uh, John L., if you want to come in with your questions on parameters and metrics, Carla? 
Um, the SEC currently has a proposal that will change the threshold of the institutional investor and who has to report the 13Fs on a quarterly basis. Many of us in the investment community have actually been pressuring the SEC to move up the time frame from 45 days after the end of the quarter to much sooner. So instead, what the SEC has done is said, rather than a money manager who has $100 million dollars under management that they need to report 13Fs. They're moving up to 3.5 billion, which will eliminate 89% of those currently reporting. It isn't done yet, but it is. it, it will tremendously change the visibility into the shareholder base. Uh, yes, all, all, all true, and, and uh, it's it's uh, it will not be helpful from 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 anybody's perspective, really. And honestly, these the costs of, of reporting. I was at an activist fund. The cost of reporting a 13F once you've done it once is 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 pretty minimal. So it, it's kind of crazy. Uh, and there's also at at, at um, uh, an amendment potentially at the FTC, which will allow activists to um, not. Uh, uh, if they don't buy up to 10% of the company, they won't have to abide by the HSR requirements, which are currently, if you own $100 million of stock, then you have to go through the HSR approval threshold. So on both of these fronts, there are initiatives that will allow activists specifically, but really any fund of under $3.5 billion to provide less visibility. So I, I we have not, Sidley hasn't, Sidley has a hedge fund practice. We don't represent activists. When I was hired, we kicked Elliot out. We did, we did some fun work for him, but we don't do it anymore. But we can't say anything publicly because of that, but from my perspective, that seems to be exactly the wrong way you want to go. And if you look at the cost of compliance of 13Fs, it's just so much lower these days than it used to. So I don't, I don't understand it. And I, I hope at the end of the day, it doesn't come to fruition. The moral of the story is get as much information about your shareholders right now while it's still available. Uh, uh, John, kicking it over to you, John L. Sure, let me get off mute here. Um, I come at this uh, as someone who spent uh, many years as general counsel of a company, so uh, two different companies recently, and so I've seen what you have to do pulling reports together, pulling information together, and it seems that there's a tension that goes on between the storytelling, as uh, Sarah put it uh, a bit earlier, and some of the uh, metrics, uh, data-driven pieces that uh, people want. It obviously things vary company by company, industry by industry. Uh, governance has tended to turn into a checklist. Do you have this feature? Don't you have this feature? Except when there are you know, wholesale failures like 737 max, oversight failures of that nature. Uh, but environmental tends to be whatever different people's favorites are, as well as what your industry is. And then social seems to be all over the place. How do you get a story out and how do, how do companies feel comfortable that their story will be read? It won't just be run through a computer program to uh, search for certain words or to run through it just as a checklist, that it will be intelligently digested. Life doesn't have guarantees. Uh, and I think, you know, I think, John, you and I have talked about a very, very large company in uh, the oil and gas sector tracked the number of individuals who visited their CSR report in a year, and it was 34. Now, two of those were the robots from MSCI and Sustainalytics, which means it went to all their shareholders anyway. Um, so, you know, there is that question. Um, it, but 
um, the scorecards are purchased by effectively all the large shareholders and a lot of the mid-sized shareholders and many small shareholders. So whether you're having individuals reading or not, um, a lot of the information gets out there. There's no question you have to pick your words right. The robots recognize some words rather than others and some words are politically correct or become that. Um, the story still matters. I, I, it made me realize I should have added a caution. When I say story, that sounds so flip and casual. Um, and I think something uh, Derek will know well is one of the big trends of the last three or four months is that companies are increasingly getting sued because their story doesn't match their data. Um, and there are now, what, 10 lawsuits against companies whose diversity story does not match their diversity data. So I don't want to, I don't want to be understood to say, tell a story cavalierly because the, and, and those lawsuits are against the directors. So also a, a significant trend. Um, but the fact of the matter is the, the, the story, which is essentially, again, your, your coherent, durable explanation of how you can sustainably make money, um, does still matter to capital attraction. Those decisions are, while the quants make them by robots, they design their algorithms. Um, a lot of those are still made by people. It tracks your, um, your human capital. It affects very much whether or not you get votes when you need them. Um, my experience, at least as most of our clients, directors care very much about whether they get reelected. So, I mean, there's, there's a place for both, but um, you're certainly right. There's, you know, there's no guarantee. And I think one of the new challenges of the last two years with the concentration of ownership in index funds is now that State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock are so large, much larger than the average actively managed fund has been, it is in fact much harder to get them to hear your story. Because if you own 28,000 companies, how the heck as you as one company are gonna get in so that State Street hears you? It's a bigger problem than it used to be. It actually means you have to focus even more on what your story is and why someone should want to hear it. Well, and, and Sarah, let me just follow up on the point you last made. For the large institutions, they have excellent teams that engage in very substantive discussions and qualitative discussions referring to metrics, but other other groups just flat don't. They won't. They don't want to talk. They don't want to do anything, and that's a big part of the market these days. As you go to index funds and people who want to keep costs down and using algorithms really to make all of their investments, it's a challenge. I think. Yeah. My approach is always: if my children's lives depended on getting in to see them, what would I do? you can always get in. You just have to think about it like that. And I, I also would say in, in normal course, it is, it is tough to get somebody's attention, but if you are in a crisis situation, and I'll use activism as an example, that's when your story matters and that's when you will get their attention. Uh, and specific to activism, I'll also say that if you come in and the first time that you've told the story and the, you haven't put, told it publicly and you just put out a presentation a week after the activist arrived about all this stuff, it has zero credibility. So even if somebody hasn't been paying attention or you think they haven't been paying attention for a year or two, the first time there's a crisis, they're going to look back and see what you've done and see if this is something, you know, Johnny come lately or if this is something where you've been doing for a while and what you're saying now actually has credibility because you've been doing it a while and now they're just paying attention to it. So even if they're not, you don't think they're listening now, it can be helpful in the future. Uh, Nora, you've got a question about best in class and then I'm going to follow that up after Nora with Alicia Smith. Sure. Can you hear me? Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You know, um, 
I know all companies are different. And I know you need to start where you are, but um, just as a board member who's not as steeped in ESG, when ESG people get together, are there certain companies that you all think are the gold standard in terms of telling the story, in terms of how they reward their executives or KPIs they use? Um, I'm interested specifically in tech, but it could be in anyone. So I could just read their proxies on what you guys would consider is good. I think Lori should answer that one first. I have my opinions, but she has to make money based on those insights. Right. I mean, I think it's important to recognize, first of all, that no company is perfect. So, you know, while it's, it's certainly a goal to be best in class, I think, you know, certainly companies, no matter where you are in this journey, it's, it's important to think about where you are today and, and understand what areas could be improved uh, and to, to continue to, to create initiatives that will drive that improvement over time. You know, for us, I mean, we, we are looking for those companies that have great practices in place today, uh, but also that will continue to evolve and improve over time. And often they do have, you know, stronger, that correlates to stronger ratings. I mean, when you look at companies that have a lot of controversies, um, you know, that those are companies that are going to have um, more risk, downside risk, you know, from a shareholder perspective and, and likely lower uh, ratings overall, not represent, you know, really best in class practices uh, and companies that have systemic issues, uh, systemic issues coming up. Uh, that can be a red flag for an investor. But I mean, back to your original question, I think, you know, it's, I can't say, you know, there's a perfect sort of playbook, what represents best, best in class, but I think within each industry, understanding you know, what are, the, what are the key, as I mentioned, material factors and how are those companies performing along that and what are they doing to improve? Those are the th sort of things that we'll look at. I think, you know, one, one indication that we'll, we'll certainly um, focus in on is, you know, what's that representation starting at the board and the executive layer in terms of sponsoring? How integrated is their ESG strategy into their core operations and their core business strategy? Do they have any sort of compensation metrics that are linked, uh, you know, environmental social governance metrics that are linked to their, their long-term or short-term incentive plan. You know, an example of a company that I own is Republic Services. And, you know, in their case, CEO um, in their short-term incentive comp uh, is tied to safety and employee engagement, because that's really important for that industry. Another company I own is KLL Tincor. And in this case, they're tying their annual executive bonuses to employee engagement employee turnover. I think Verizon's another one. I, I don't happen to own that one, but I've noticed that they also, you know, tie a lot of their, their bonuses um, with a target of having at least, I think, almost 60% of their workforce comprised of minorities and women. So, you know, looking for companies that are bringing in, um, you know, specific targets into their executive comp, that can really back up that message, you know, companies really care about uh, moving, uh, moving forward on these ESG initiatives. Great, thanks. I was feverishly writing all of that down just now. Uh, it looks like we've we've answered Alicia's question. Uh, Leah, you want to ask yours? I'll ask it for her since she's muted. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. Um, do we anticipate? And I guess Derek, this is more for you, but Sarah as well more economic activism with an ESG focus. So with Elliott Management and Evergy, there was the strategic plan that was just finalized, the letter to the board. 
with Peru, we saw a, a little bit of focus on reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions by some M&A, um, mm -hmm. but do we, do we think there's gonna be more of a focus from traditional activists on the ESG space? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, part of this will be tied into the traditional uh, economic activism. Part of it will be, and this is the other piece of why activists care about it, is an ability to attract capital for themselves. So just doing Evergy once for Elliot, the fact that they've hired Christine O'Brien to be you know, their ESG person, all of these things are very good for them and every other activist that's going to be doing this, all they have to do is do it once. And they have a very good story to attract capital from, again, these same institutions where these things are important. So, yes, I think we'll see uh, I think we'll see more of that. The other piece that will be interesting to see, I'm not 100 percent sure about it yet. That's certainly true of the established funds. We'll see if there's um, more startup funds where it's really hard to differentiate what you do as a startup fund. This may be one where a couple of startup funds really take take the bull by the horns because it, it, without this or something else, it's, it's really difficult to show how you're different than other funds. So I could see that happening as well, in addition to the, to the big funds that are doing it. I agree. They're both happening. If you just Google Kimmeridge Energy, which has been a traditional financial activist in the oil and gas sector, go check out their ESG, their environmental targets. They are unbelievable. They're tough. They're smart. Um, and frankly, they worked with some of the largest uh, shareholders in the U.S. to draft them. So it was a joint effort. I mean, that's, a, and it, since that's not, you know, and Elliot, you know, it, it shows you how far down the, the spectrum it is going. Uh, we just encountered uh, another activist that has both kind of a mainstream set of targets that appear to be largely financial, but it has, in addition, a campaign where they buy one share of stock in a whole bunch of other companies and send them very explicit ESG-focused letters. Um, sounds a bit like a marketing campaign to me. Hard to know. Um, but, I mean, we do know it's happening, and they call it. Their, they call the campaign. It's their one-share ESG campaign. So it, it, it's consciously doing that. So I, I agree with Derek. It's coming from the financial activists. I mean, they visit... The shareholders most more than most companies do, so they have their finger on the pulse. And Jack, Jack Lazar, you had a question. Yeah, I had an interesting one happen to me the other day. I had a CEO of a private company come to me and say, uh, and this private company happens to have a very good E, so they're very focused on sustainability. I think they'll be a pretty interesting company. But um, they are looking at going public and his argument was by having dual class shares, I can really push the E even more than maybe some of my shareholders, my initial shareholders would think. So it's an interesting dilemma that I thought, um, I'd be curious to get some feedback on how you think an institutional investor might think of something like that. Awfully hard to wrap dual class cap in anything and get the main institutional investors to like it, no matter how pretty the wrapping paper. It doesn't uh, sound good at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think you can put in contrast, look what uh, Viva Systems is proposing. It's the first normal company, a you know, 40 billion market cap company that doesn't sell any crunchy granola or wool shoes. Uh, that is proposing to convert to a PBC and get rid of its dual class cap and get rid of its stagger board and get rid of its plurality voting. And it's not because they're crazy people, they're smart people. Um, I mean, they, they service the whole industry. And I think the reaction that they're getting is pretty darn positive. Um, so I would be interesting to see, they will certainly have to, that would be an interesting job for a communications firm to take on, selling dual class cap wrapped in, in 
environmental wrapping paper. Um, um, I mean, the trouble with dual class cap is that it's completely untouchable. And so if the founder changes his or her mind on the environmental thing, Jack can't get at it. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. I, I think, Jack, that there are some issues that are just such third rails um, that you can't really explain why your company's different and needs it. Classified board is one of them. This, this dual class um, with, with high vote, low vote is another. Is that there's a most, for most issues, and I think honestly the best companies that, that do um, uh, on the governance side especially, uh, good companies are kind of within the ballpark of what other companies do. The best company stories have a couple things where they are kind of off, you know, do what the minority does, but they have a very good explanation as to why it fits with their company. It's just that there are some things that you can't really get away with in, in, in having that conversation, why your company's different, and classified board and dual class stock are two things where it's just an extremely high lift to, to prove that why your company needs it and, and, and it's, you know, other companies don't. Yeah, I, I found it interesting, though, because, uh, you know, the numbers are 40% of the tech companies that go public are dual class, right? So you're um, taking an interesting argument to really kind of push what is an angle, which is the E side of things. And so it's interesting. Why don't you ask him whether he wants to go public as a PDC? I, I've had those discussions with the person who <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I know the CFO of Viva very well, so you have many discussions about this stuff. But I think that um, there's there are some real issues going down that path too. So it's it's not that straightforward. It's really hard to be first at anything. Although in response to Nora's question earlier, um, as opposed to naming names for companies that are best in class, certainly one of the things that I look at when I am trying to size up a company for the first time is can I point to anything they are doing where they are first? Yeah, I'd say, Jack, you're right. A lot of companies, a lot of tech companies do go with uh, with dual class from the start. And that is clearly an option. I just, I'm not sure how much bang for your buck you're going to get with the E, you being differentiated. But certain, certainly an option and certainly something that you should have as part of the communication package if you go that way. Yeah, but I think it is a very interesting communications. Uh, my, uh, com my, my communications antenna went up when you said that. Yeah. Lori Yoler, you, uh, you have a question. Oh, I, I just, when the, when the amount of gold jewelry was mentioned, I was thinking, okay, is that positively or negatively correlated to performance? So I was just curious. <laughs> Only for males and three or more gold doodads. So like cufflinks, a gold chain, and a tie bar correlate negatively. This is, this is 30 negatively. years Negatively, interesting, negatively. okay. Um, we also track the size of CEOs entourages when they visited money managers. And it turns out if it's size of entourage, once it gets past a certain size, correlates negatively. Nice, thank you. But that's very dated, so I do not advise you to trade on it. <laughs> Lori, get rid of your entourage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to cut it back. Yeah. That's funny. Derek, should, should boards have an activist plan sitting on the sideline? Should we have a, an activist plan? Should something come about? You hear that. Is, is it worth our while to do it? If we have, even if we don't have an activist that's a big shareholder right now, or if we do, I assume you would, you would say yes. 
Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think that's that's the most critical thing. If you think about activism preparedness, um, what's the most important things to think about now? These are things that you can't do once the activist arrives. One of those things is you need to prepare if there's a white paper that comes out um, attacking your company out of nowhere, like what Jesse Cohn likes to do is is find the CEO's uh, cell phone, call him up on uh, or her up on on Sunday evening, and tell them that there's a white paper coming in the morning. But you know we're friends. Like I want to work with you. Uh, in that type of situation, you need to have two things. One is you need to know what your communications plan is that first day, because that first day response is very, very important. And secondly, you need to know what the process flow internally is for the first 24 hours, who the advisors, who are you going to meet with, when is the CEO, when is the board involved? Because you've seen a lot of mistakes happen in that first 24 hours. And if you, you make especially an external mistake in the first 24 hours, it can live for you, live with you for the rest of the campaign. So that, making sure your bylaws are in order, because once an activist shows up, you really can't change the rules of the game once going forward. So there's a handful of things like that, that if you are really just going to focus on a couple things um, right now in, in advance of a potential activist, those are the ones to focus on. I'd say one other thing. I would say, you know, just from a shareholder outreach, I think it's really important to proactively have discussions with your key shareholders uh, outside of proxy season. So you have those dialogue already in place. So when an activist shows up, you're not going to, those, those investors aren't necessarily going to be skewed by uh, the activist narrative that's just come into play. If you've already had that dialogue at the management team and ideally at the board level as well. I know a number of our holdings have a formal shareholder outreach program, so I meet quite a bit with um, boards across many of my companies regularly outside of the proxy season. By a show of hands, how many board directors are involved with activists? Anyone? I mean, this is interesting because Lori and Derek are both saying that boards should be involved with the activists, but I don't see any hands. so. That, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I know, Sarah, when you and I talked, you talked about the top 10 making it a regular occurrence in the fall. You even had a term for it. I forgot what you called it, but um, it was like the, you know, time to meet with the, with the top shareholders. Uh, any other thoughts there? Because a lot of times the CEO and the CFO are pretty, pretty tight-lipped about that. They want to, they want to control the dialogue. I think there's pros and cons to directors being involved. Can we elaborate a little more on that topic? Vanguard's annual report, the, the big funds now have an annual report that comes out this time of year. Vanguard's just came out. And I think the percentage was 46. I think it's right. Anyway, it was in the mid 40s uh, of the number of engagement meetings they held that included a director. And that's about the same that uh, Vanguard's percentage last year. So not quite half. Um, there are certainly some topics and some situations where you know, most of the large shareholders will expect a director to be involved. Um, I mean, you, you don't want to talk to a CEO about his or her own pay uh, or activist situation. So, I, I, you know, you can't say that it's the the norm, but it is pretty common. Um, and there are a lot of um, mid-sized companies that actually offer directors because, if again, if you're fighting to get into C State Street, offering a director gets you in the door. So, if you if you're just trying to get what I call attention capital. Um, you probably, I was probably saying engagement season to you, but if you want to get attention capital, um, you have some, some angles there. Um, so yes, but, but it is not, it's not the over, it's not the overwhelming majority right now. There are some shareholders where it's much uh, more frequent practice for them to expect a director. There have been some shareholders that ask for the directors to attend with the CEO. And then after they're all there, they ask the CEO to leave. Um, so there, 
a variety of practices. But I think the Vanguard data is the most current and telling. And I think there used to be a concern, and maybe there still is, that if you bring a director, you're signaling there's something wrong. Um, and that may have been true years ago, but in this day and age, if you offer a director, nobody, you know, people aren't gonna interpret that as there being something wrong with the company. Totally different, you're right. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, as we wrap here in these last couple of minutes, what are some key takeaways we need to be thinking about as, as board directors? Something that's top of mind specifically surrounding ESG, and I think it's a struggle, at least in my own boardrooms right now, it's, okay, what information should management be gathering? All this data that's being collected that we're going to spit out in sustainability reports and in proxy statements, et cetera. There's that, but then there's also what should come up to the board for us to be monitoring? What's the what's that, that enterprise-wide risk dashboard look like pertaining to ESG? So in, in these final thoughts from each of you, as we think about at the board level, what we should be monitoring on an ongoing basis with regard to ESG, what do you think? What do you think those those items should be? Um, I'll start. Um, I like to say to board members, ask yourself if you're getting enough information to answer these questions. If something were wrong at my company of a fraudulent nature, how would I know? If something were wrong of an operational nature, how would I know? So, and, and then if something were wrong from a reputational point of view, how would I know? If you're not getting information to answer those questions, you're, you're at risk. Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything to add to that. I guess I'll just say that um, probably the easiest thing you can do is just make sure the company, make sure you are already getting credit for all the things you're already doing. Um, so if you are doing things, make sure you've compared them, you know, looked at the checklist, looked at it, and make sure you're telling people, make sure it's out there, make sure it's on your website and your proxy statement. And I'm thinking particularly, this is a general statement, but also from an activism perspective, it goes back to, you got to plant the flag that this is something you've been doing for a long time, because if there's a crisis or an activist or something else, you don't want to be viewed as just, you now you're saying it because you have to say it because you're trying to curry favor. You want to make sure you plant the flag early. And I, there's just so many companies that are doing some things that fall into the broad realm of human capital management, which is a very broad term that they're already doing, but not getting credit for. So make sure you inventory what you're doing. And the easiest thing to do is, is just make sure it's out there. Tell your story. I would, I'll just, Add a few points as well. I mean, I would wholeheartedly agree with what's been said so far. I think obviously, you know, what, what I'm seeing, you know, certainly having been in this industry, you know, focused on ESG investing for a long time is it's, it's becoming very mainstream. And so I think what I would expect going forward is increasing demands for more disclosure, more transparency by companies and by their boards. And I think, you know, a lot of things that are maybe what we're seeing in Europe today they're going to be coming this direction. When I look out five years from now, I would not be surprised to see more regulations in place around increased disclosure. And so I think getting in front of that, making sure as you, as my co-panelists have mentioned, you know, really controlling uh, the narrative, uh, making sure that it's reflective of all the positive things that are happening within the company can go a long way to attract the type of investors, long-term long-term oriented shareholders uh, who are looking to be a partner in dialogue with companies versus really, uh, you know, an activist approach that's going to really try to change um, what's being done. So, you know, that would be, you know, my main recommendation, obviously, 
you know, there's a lot of greenwashing. I think it's really important to be authentic about what you're focused on and make sure that it's tied into the core strategy um, because that will be uh, very apparent if it's not from, from, the, uh, in, from the shareholder perspective. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and for all of us directors, for each of you that are on this call, we're leading the charge and staying on top and staying current and staying educated on these things. And there's going to be an equal amount of reporting on us in, in proxy statements as far as director education going forward. So thank you for all attending. Lisa, I'm going to pass it off to you to close this out. Thank you, panelists, and thank you, directors. 